be a part, come when we want, come where, go where we want, go to one church for a little while, go to another church for a little while. Isn't it just an unnecessary system? And we're suspicious of institutions, of, po- of political systems, of churches, of organizations, institutions. The, ch- the church is corrupt, many people would say. When it starts getting official and all organized, it loses its power. We're certainly skeptical about leadership and submission to leaders. They're just about money and, and pastors' egos. It's all just a bunch of scandal and deceit. Politicians, church leaders, priests have shown us that time and time again. And to be a member of something is, by definition, to be something that others are not. Isn't that dangerously exclusive? Isn't this whole ministry partnership, church membership thing, isn't that just exclusive and leaving others on the outside? For many of us, we find more acceptance and community outside the church than in. What do we do with the fact that we find many people outside of the church living what appear to be more generous, more gracious, and more inspiring lives? Doesn't that defunct the whole call for ministry partnership and church community? Those are hard questions. They're fair questions. So often they're wrapped in cynicism that comes from either hurt or lack of belief. But I certainly identify with it. So I think it's helpful, maybe right off the get-go, to just talk about some definitions here. We're going to spend the majority of our time in points two and three. But let's just start with a couple definitions of what ministry partnership is. First of all, we don't call it church membership. We call it ministry partnership. And I love that phrase. It's really helpful. Church membership, sometimes it's like, well, I'm a member, and therefore I have certain privileges. Or I'm a member, therefore certain things are demanded of me. And it's just sort of this membership interaction. There's nothing wrong with the phrase church membership at all. But it's begun to have negative connotations when we hear it. Uh, ministry partnership, however, I think just says something really, really great, which is you're going to receive from this local body, but you're also expected to give in this local body. When we talk about discipleship, a a local church should, at its foremost, be a place that makes you a, a greater, deeper, richer, closer disciple of Jesus. And yet there's the partnership aspect, which is, and you're a part of making others better disciples. You're a part of discipling, both discipled and discipling. We, we oftentimes do a, a welcome lunch here where if you're new this morning, keep your eye out for a welcome lunch we do from time to time. And, and for years I would watch as Pastor Ron, our previous lead pastor, would get up and, and, and he would say, you know, his, his, the heart of his message was really, hey, this, may, this place probably isn't for you. Maybe it's not for you. You know, find the church that, that, that fits you. And I'm thinking, really? This is what you're No, 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 don't say that. Say how, how great we are and what all the wonderful things are. We want to keep them. But you know what that showed me? He wants people to settle into a place where they say, yeah, my soul is, is served here. My soul is nurtured here. And then there's a really quick follow-up once you've identified that local congregation that does that. The quick follow-up is, and now I'm going to give my gifts. Now I'm going to serve and partner with and that's what the heart of ministry partnership is here. But, but who can become a ministry partnership? 
The simple answer is a Christian can become a ministry partner. So you come to faith, you get baptized. It's, it's, it's the first and easiest command of Jesus to follow, to be honest. Repent and be baptized. And, and some of us have waited a long time and still haven't been baptized. I encourage you, November 2nd, we're doing baptisms. There's a ministry partnership and baptism class we call Central 101 coming at, uh, at September 28th. Pastor Gary will be leading that. And, and so I encourage you to look that way. I read something this week. Getting wet is the easiest command Jesus ever gave to follow. It only gets more difficult from there. It's so true. And yet many of us get tied up with, with, with ah, getting baptized in front of a church, on a stage, in front of people. It makes me nervous. Or I wish it was in a large body of water. It seems more authentic. You know, whatever the hang-ups are. I encourage you to follow that easiest of commandments to follow. And right after that comes your opportunity to join yourself to a local church. A Christian who's been baptized can become a ministry partner. Church membership begins when a local church affirms an individual Christian's profession of faith, just like Jesus did with Peter. Jesus looked Peter in the eyes and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. His profession of who Jesus was, that he knew it, he understood the gospel, was really all it took. So, that's who can become a ministry partner. What is a ministry partner? Well, a a ministry partner or a church member is someone who is formally recognized as a Christian and part of Christ's universal body. It's a participant in the mutuality of life in the church. It's a person who identifies with the core beliefs and values of a local congregation and says, I'm in together with everyone else on the mission. I'm a part of it. I'm committed and submit to it for the good of my discipleship and the discipleship of others. We put on banners what we're truly ultimately about in front of you and we, we invite you to be a part of the mission. It's simply a local expression of a global people. I like the idea of the fact, if you look at Revelation 11 and other places, where, where we realize and we understand this isn't our home. We're actually foreigners here. We're aliens here. This isn't where we belong. Heaven is our home. And if we're foreigners here, then what is the local church? Well, I think the local church is embassies in foreign lands. It's a physical place. It's a place where people gather, and they know who they are, and they're pointing to the homeland. Jonathan Lehman uh, fleshed this out well when he said, there is a place on earth where the citizens of heaven can, at this moment, find official recognition and asylum, and it's the local church. Churches represent Christ's rule now. They affirm and protect his citizens now. They proclaim his laws now. They bow before him as king now and call all peoples to do the same. A local church is a real-life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and his coming universal church. That's the local church. We're an embassy in a foreign land proclaiming to people about our homeland. The universal church manifests itself through the local church. That's how you know it's there. This week, and really every week, people show up at our our, our church office doors and they're in need. And they look at us and say, you're a church. Can you help me? You love Jesus. Can you help me? We're an embassy in a foreign land and people can come. Their needs can be met. We help people when they need food. We walk alongside people in their times of need. We gather. We're a local body and people around us know it and they know where they can come when they're in need. 
The local church is the primary place where we, we do, do, do something that's inward-focused and, and, and something that's outward-focused. The local church is the primary place where we seek to help other believers fight against their sin and where we, in turn, should open ourselves up to receive the same help. And it's where we spur each other on in the faith where we edify and encourage one another. See, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's a mutuality, there's a coming together, and there's an observing in one another, and there's a call to, to, to get our lives right with Jesus, to point each other towards Jesus, to rid ourselves, point out sin so that we can encourage one another. It's the place where we help others fight their sin and they help us do the same. And as Hebrews 10 tells us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It's where we gather as a people to encourage each other. That's the inward positive focus of the local church. Well, there's an outward one too, and it's this. The local church is God's evangelism plan. It's not rogue individuals sharing Jesus, having somebody say a prayer, and then leaving them to their own devices. It's pointing them to Christ, living on mission, and drawing them to a body of people who will encourage who will help them grow, who will care about their discipleship. It's one and the same, and we're going to see in the scriptures, it's always one and the same. The local church is God's evangelism plan. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you to. Here's, I think, the core marks of what ministry partnership means here at Central. If you take the Central 101 course, or you have, you would talk about all of these things. It's helpful to point them out. Ministry partnership counts me in on a great mission. It says, this is what Central's about. This is what I'm about. Ministry partnership commits me to a community of committed people. Is you commit, but you're not the only one. You're committing with others. Ministry partnership helps us all keep expectations clear. This is what it means to be a ministry partner, and that's shown. And we say, yeah. Ministry partnership affirms that we hold to common values and beliefs from the Bible. Ministry partnership helps us all partner financially. Ministry partnership or ministry partners understand their calling and use their gifts and abilities collectively. Ministry partnership counts us all in as hosts to newcomers. And ministry partnership opens the door for key leadership roles. It's all via ministry partnership. And really, what is it? It's we're in this together. Let's make it official. I know that scares some of you. So what I'd like to do is not show you in the Bible where ministry partnership exists and say, see, you've got to do it. But show you in the Bible where ministry partnership exists and allow you to see the beauty that is surrounding it. Jesus calls us to himself and calls us to his church, and beauty surrounds both of those things. So may we see that. So where we see it in Scripture, really, show me it's there. Because I've typed in church membership before, and there's not a verse in the Bible about that. Unfortunately, there is for those who would make those arguments. Unfortunately, there is. Unfortunately, there is. Mark Dever said, from the earliest of times, local Christian churches were congregations of specific, identifiable people. 
The idea of a clearly defined community of people is central to God's action in both the Old and New Testaments. We see it over and over and over again. There's an identifiable people, always. The lives of Christians together display visibly the gospel they proclaim audibly. Listen to this. The lives of Christians together display visibly the gospel they proclaim audibly. There's a display of the gospel that happens in the community of believers. So let's, let's look primarily this morning just in Acts. It's many, 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 many more places. We're going to look primarily at Acts. Look at Acts 1.1. 1, 1. Luke, the writer, says in this, sorry, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is the first book that's written after the four Gospels. So the New Testament, if you're a little unfamiliar with the Bible, begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Following that is the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So Luke, the writer of Acts, is saying in the first book, meaning the Gospel of Luke that I wrote about Jesus, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. But now I'm writing you this. There's in, inherent in that is, here's what Jesus is now continuing to do. Are you ready? Acts is an awesome book. So you ready? Here we go. We're going to cruise. We're going to cruise. So this is what Jesus is continuing to do. Well, what's he continuing to do? In Acts 1.15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Make note of that. They're documenting it here, and it's important to see. Peter stands up before the believers, and there are about 120 people. Then the promised Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus promised, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, beginning of chapter 2. They spill out into the street, speaking in tongues, and people in Jerusalem who are gathering for the Feast of Pentecost, they're looking around at these people and say, these people are drunk. They're filled with the Spirit, and they're speaking in tongues. But Peter says, it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. They're not drunk. They're filled with the, the Holy Spirit, and the people listened, and they actually heard, though they had many foreign language, get, languages gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, they were hearing the good news. They were hearing about Jesus in their tongue. One of the, one, one of the tongues that God gives people is actually uh, languages, real earthly languages. Another form of tongues is heavenly languages, but that's another sermon another day. Uh, what we're going to talk about here is the fact that what was going on here is people were hearing something and it moved them. And so Peter then stands up and he preaches the gospel to them that day. And included in that is chapter 2, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, really come to faith in Jesus Call him your Lord and Savior. Believe it in your heart. Now go and get baptized. The Spirit of God is going to fill you as a new believer, as, as this. And then look how the, it, it goes on in, in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They believed. They took the easiest commandment. They got wet. And then... They were added to the church, about 3,000 souls. Somebody's counting heads. After that sermon, there's 3,120 Christians about. They're keeping tabs. They know who they are. 
And then as we looked at last week, it goes on in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It goes on to say that they met in the temple courts to worship and they met in their homes and broke bread. They're meeting um, multiple times a week and they are physical people who claim to know Jesus and who are a part of this thing. And they know how many they are. And then it says in verse 47, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. People are both coming to Christ and inherent in that is that the church is growing. We can move on to chapter 4, verse 4, where uh, uh, we, we see the same thing happening. Many of those who had heard the word believed And the number of men came to about 5,000. Men alone, chapter 4, verse 4, about 5,000. They know. Not to be an impressive mega church of some sort, but they know who belongs. And that matters for their discipleship, for their ministry. And all seems to be right, seems to be great. The church is booming. And a lot of times we look at Acts and say, yeah, you know, that's early church. The, the capital A apostles are doing their thing there. That's wild stuff. We're just sort of the, ah, it's hard to notice what God's doing. And it's just, uh, like, we just limp into what we think church is now. And one of the things we'll often say is, yeah, but, you know, like, they're just these saintly people. They're all doing the right thing. and The church is booming. Look at chapter 5. The very beginning of chapter 5, there's these two people. It's a couple. Uh, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira. They just observed at the end of chapter 4, Barnabas, who sold um, his land, brought the, the money for the whole thing and put it at the apostles' feet. A church gathering, he's placing it all before their feet and saying, use this to serve the body. And, you know, people would have been murmuring, wow sold the whole property and gave the whole amount to the church. Wow, Barnabas, what a saint. This is amazing. Wow. And Ananias and Sapphira observing this and going, wow, look at, look at the notoriety he's getting. I mean, he did it out of, for good intentions, and yet people are observing this and think amazing things of Barnabas. Well, Ananias and Sapphira want in on that, so they sell the property. But they keep some back. That's their prerogative. Great. You can do that. But they bring it, and they triumph in, and they bring it as if they're bringing everything and put it at the disciples' feet or the apostles' feet. And Peter goes off. Long story short, both of them are dead. Um, Again, another sermon, another day. We can get into that another time. But we can't say, look at this sinless, perfect Just everything's going right for them. It's not the same. They're not filled with messy people. They are. They are. Let's keep going. Chapter 6, 1 to 4. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, and they knew it, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full member of the... Sorry, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They summoned the church. And said, it is not right that we should give up uh, preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You know what's happening here in chapter 6? Church meeting. Members meeting. 
They're gathered together and saying, something's going on. Either we're missing by accident or somebody's missing on purpose. Uh, the Hellenist Jews were Greek-speaking Jews, but for some reason their widows were being missed in the distribution because the church was meeting the needs. People like Barnabas were, were giving so generously that everybody's needs were met and the ministry was going forward. And this is powerful and this is wonderful and yet people are being missed. So they call a church members meeting. And what happens in the meeting? We're not meeting the needs of some of our people like we should. Let's talk about it. Here's the plan that, that, that we want to put forward Appoint seven deacons. And we want these deacons to make sure that everybody gets their needs met. We're a body. We are a people, and we're going to meet the needs from within our body. There was a church members meeting, Acts chapter 6, about widows not getting as much as they should. It's beautiful. It's happening here. They spent time together. They care about each other. And as chapter 5 verse 13 tells us, this united, visible church is so committed to Jesus and to each other that the people held them in high esteem. That's people outside of the church holding them in high esteem. Chapter 2 verse 47, it said that they were having favor with all the people, even among a religious Jewish people. They're looking at the Christian church and saying, this is different. This is unique. This is powerful. I respect those people. They're living so generously. They're loving so emphatically. This is unique. But persecution begins. Peter and John are brought before the rulers and elders and scribes in Jerusalem and questioned in chapter 4. All the apostles are arrested in chapter 5. A leader named Stephen is stoned to death in chapter 8. And a Pharisee named Saul began going from house to house, dragging church members off to prison, it says in chapter 8, verse 3. It's as if he got a hold of the church member directory. He knew their addresses. He knew who they were. And he started going from house to house, finding those who were a part of this church and dragging them off to prison. Their allegiance, though, remained to Jesus above all, and the church continued to gather, and the church continued to grow. A few years ago, I went to, uh, to China um, to serve with some missionaries there short term, and uh, we observed in northern China, a city of a million people, an underground church of like 20 to 30,000 people. Even in the service that we were a part of, they gathered black luxury cars with tinted windows, communist officials showed up and paraded down the aisles trying to strike fear into people, knowing that any one of them, they could just drag them off and put them in a prison for a while. They were part of the underground church that would not bend on what the gospel was. They wouldn't be a part of the official church in China that cut pieces out. No, they were part of the underground church that took this and followed this, and at great risk to themselves, they gathered. Try telling this church in northern China that risk their lives, risk their freedom to gather, that it's just, nah, take it or leave it, it's for some. That's not what this church did. They are starting to get persecuted, and they intentionally scatter. They begin to scatter, and upon scattering, the Christians come to the realization that Jesus came not only to save the Jews, but also Gentiles. Then Saul himself comes to Christ and begins to preach the gospel. Look at chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecutions arose over... that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the words to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. 
And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In verse 24 it says, And a great many people were added to the Lord. Here, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians begin sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Over and over, further and further throughout the world, as they go, the early church sent disciples of Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, and everywhere they went, people came to Jesus, and local churches were established. We see the letters to those churches in this word, that they are a people who gather, who know who they are, who belong. Do you not love the book of Acts? It's just passion and beauty, and God is moving, and they're committed to Jesus and his people, and it just is seamless. It's not easy, it's not sinless, but those two things work seamlessly as we observe the building of the church. Look at the boldness, the gifts, the moving of the Spirit, the building of Christ's church. It's exactly what Luke said in Acts 1.1. Here's what Jesus is now continuing to do. The Gospel of Luke described what Jesus began to do, and the book of Acts describes his continuing work. Jesus declared that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Let's switch gears a little bit and look at one verse in Hebrews 13, verse 17. This is one of the kinds of verses that, 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 that many people in our day, in our time, in our place uh, sort of recoil against. Look what it says, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So two questions about that verse. They're about authority and they're about submission. First, if there's no biblical requirement to belong to a local church, then which leader should should an individual Christian obey and submit? So if you say, well, you know what? The church isn't for me, but Jesus is for me, and I'll meet Jesus in the Bible, and then you come across Hebrews 13, 17 that says to submit to your leaders. So is that a pastor or an elder in the city of Chilliwack? Is that a celebrity pastor? Is that, you know, who, like, just functionally, like, who, who do you submit to if, if the local church is not inherent in this? If there's no call to a local church, what do we do with verses like this? Which leaders do we submit to? The obvious interpretation is that it's those who lead the local church you affiliate with and commit yourself to, you submit to their leadership. Second, who will I as a pastor give an account for? Who will the leadership of Central, your lead team, your pastors, who will they give an account for? The command to elders is to care for specific Peter, uh, people. First Peter 5, 1 says, I exhort the elders among you, among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So who do the pastors and lead team of Central need to give an account for? The universal church? The churches of Chilliwack and Agassiz? Christians? Or those who identify themselves as ministry partners central the clear response as we begin to look at these sorts of passages is the church always gathered they always knew who they were and then there was a form to that model to local church that included leadership 
in particular ways, serving and submitting in particular ways in the use of everybody's gifts in beautiful ways. I'd like, though, now, not just to show you in the Bible and tell you, see, you should, but I hope your heart will be compelled. And that's how, how ministry partnership displays the gospel. So maybe I've shown you where it is. It's, it's in lots of places in the Bible. Now I want to tell you why it, why it matters. There are a number of metaphors for the church. Have you noticed that? If you, if, if you, if you read the New Testament much, you'll see all sorts of metaphors for the church, branches to the vine, a field of crops, a building, a new temple, a new group of priests, God's house, a body, a bride, a family, metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. I hear a lot of times somebody say, we are the body of Christ, therefore it means this. And we are, we are the body of Christ, but it's one of many metaphors. And, and, and what the, the reason we have many metaphors is because one doesn't do it justice. We're trying to describe Christ and his church. So I'll say this metaphor. Ah, that doesn't cut it. I'll, I'll tell you this one. Maybe in this particular way, this metaphor says something of what it is. And on and on and on we go. There's so many metaphors. We don't want to choose one to the detriment of others. We take them all and we try to see what is meant by all of it. See, the universal church manifests itself in local churches and is called to make visible a foretaste of the beauty, wholeness, and goodness that is to come. Christ returning for his bride, the church, and how things will ultimately be. We're meant to feed into, as a local congregation, what that's supposed to look like here and now. A foretaste of what is to come. But let's look at a few of them because they are helpful. Let's look at the body metaphor of which Christ is the head, Colossians 1.18 tells us, and Ephesians 1.22 tells us. This is where the term church member comes from, one body, many members. So we are central, many members. Romans 12.5 talks about this where it says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We see that there's one body with many members. So um, this isn't meant to be blasphemy, but pretend for a moment that I'm the church, the local church. (laughs) I don't know why I went down this trail. Um, One body. Here I go. Across the stage. But everything's there, and we're all on mission together. Because when I get here, I might want to pick up a water, or I might want to kick this, something off the carpet over there. But we're all going. We're all traveling. One body. We are one. We are on mission together. It's all of me. But when I get there, I have many parts, and whatever I'm doing, I might be going over to use the computer, and I need these fingers and this brain. And when I go over here, I just want to kick a soccer ball with my son, and so this foot's getting used. And it's one body, but it's doing different tasks with different parts, all useful, one body, many members. And it starts to talk about that in, in, in terms of the church context. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's hospitality. Maybe it's this. It begins to say, we're like a body with many members, and we all begin to contribute in the ways that God has gifted us to and made us faithful to. First Corinthians 12 picks up on this. For just as the body uh, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. On and on it goes. The Holy Spirit unifies us and yet celebrates the many parts. 
And that's complicated, isn't it? I mean, one body, many parts, many members. It, it, it's a little bit tricky because if, if I'm an index finger, um, that's most familiar to me. And some, sometimes I start to think, well, everyone should sort of act like an index finger, but, but, but not everyone is meant to act like an index finger. And so there's, there's unity in that we're all one body, and yet there's diversity in that we're all contributing in, in, in different ways. And it actually begins to show us, wow, we really need each other to be here. We really need to be a local gathering and be together because we, we actually need each other to do this the way that Jesus would have us do this. What I've seen happen a few times, not really around here, to be honest, by God's grace, but I, I, I hear it from pastor friends, and I, I definitely know the stories. of. You know, let's use hospitality as an example. There's a guy, and he's a part of a church. He goes, you know what? The church is supposed to be hospitable. And I've been coming here for years, and no one's ever invited me over. Is that wrong? I think it's wrong. There should be hospitality. But he says, you know what? I'm a good host. And he starts to get friends excited about the fact that, you know what the church is about? It's about hospitality. And he gets six or seven friends. Yeah, yeah, church is all about hospitality. And we've got to do life together. And just we'll be our own little group and our own little church. And we'll do this, and we'll be hospitable. This church isn't. We are. And so then off they go. I get it on one hand. I get that it should be this and it's not. And there's angst in that in all sorts of ways. But don't you see the great problem in that is when the six hospitable people leave to be hospitable to each other, we're all the worse for it now. If only those six people had stayed and said, you know what we're going to do? I think there's actually people, our church doesn't know how to do hospitality well. Let's begin to display it, all six of us. Let's be the best hosts this church has ever seen. And off they go, and, and they're so hospitable. And you know what? When you've been hosted well by somebody, the next time you host, don't you think, you know what? The doilies those people put out, that was, that was pristine. When we invite these people, we're going to put the doilies out. They, they hosted well. I love that my cup went down on a little doily. Like, that's so sweet. And, and, and because they had us over, we're now, we're now getting it. And we're like, yeah, I'm getting excited about hospitality. And when this person hosted me, when they didn't leave and become their own hospitable little church, when they stuck around and hosted me, that conversation was so deep. That conversation was so good. I, I crave that. I want that and begin to, right? And all of a sudden, there's 60 people who know how to host well. Why? Because those who saw something that should have been there didn't turn them from the place, but said, I'm going to take this ugly thing and make it beautiful. We're going to describe that more in a little bit. Next, there's the bride and the bridegroom. I got to do a couple weddings in the last couple weeks, and I didn't use these verses, but, but, but the thought kind of occurred to me uh, about it. Look at chapter 5, verse 25. I'll tell you the thought. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You know what's so interesting about this metaphor is we often look at Christ and the church as the metaphor for our marriages. Right? We think, oh, you know, like we have our marriages, and then and that's what Christ and the church looks like. And we, we look at Christ and the church as the metaphor. You know what? You know what the, the beautiful way, you know what the right way to look at marriages are? Our marriages are the metaphors. Christ and the church is the great marriage. And what happens from that is we see Christ and the way he treats his church, and it gives us a vision of how I as a husband am supposed to treat my wife. As my, my wife, how she's called 
to treat me. And we see it not as the impulses in our own lives and what we feel like we deserve, but we begin to see in our marriages that we're actually meant to look. We are, we are these metaphors, and we look at Christ and how he responded. So the way that works itself out is our leading in our marriages is meant to follow Christ's loving leadership of his church where he even lay his life down for her. And our submitting in our marriages is meant to follow Christ's lead in the submitting of his will to the Father and the willing following of the church to the groom. Our individual marriages are meant to display the greatest marriage of all. And our role in the church is to see Jesus as the perfect, loving, great groom who lay his, down, his life down for the church universal, displayed in the church local. I'll give you one more metaphor quickly and it's the family metaphor the church as family my heart has been warming to this one a lot look at first timothy 5 verse 1 do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father treat younger men like brothers older women like mothers young women like sisters in all purity. It's important for us to remember that Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and how church leadership is meant to look. This is for a local church, and he's writing this. How should they treat one another? Well, we treat the older men, we encourage them, and we treat them with respect. Younger men, we treat them like a brother. Older women, like a mother. Younger women, like sisters in all purity. I love that picture, the church as family. Here's the problem that we come across when we talk church membership. We often view church membership as a club or a service. We often view it more like a bowling league or BCAA. It's helpful to view it as a family. I was born into my family, and my family's my family. We're all born into the human race, and we're a member of the human race. We can't really take ourselves out of that and join a different one. We're inherently that. that. That's what we are. So it's not just sort of a, yeah, I'm getting a, I get a BCAA card and I'm a member and there's perks and there's, it also costs me something. But when we see the family element of it, of look around, it's my family. And it's a beautiful thing. It's also a really hard thing. Really hard thing. Um, there's this participation with and commitment to our local church that stems out of ministry partner that says, I'm in. And we don't choose people individually that we'll commit to. We get the whole family. Um, so let, let me give you maybe a little illustration. Let, let's, let, let's pretend we're at a, a Thanksgiving dinner and the whole family's there. We're talking extended family. We're talking all the cousins. We're talking essentially the MCC sale in Abbotsford. It's, just, it's, a, it's a big just bunch of relatives getting together. Um, and we're sitting around a table together. Thanksgiving, extended family is there. You know who's there? Crazy aunt. Right? Crazy aunt's there. And she says the things that are just the most off-the-wall statements. We kind of cringe a little bit, and like, oh. You know, she just says some wacky stuff. But she makes the most amazing stuffing. She does. So really, as I sit at the table and I enjoy the stuffing, I look down at crazy aunt and say, I'm so glad you're here. This is delicious. I love what you bring. I love you. You know who else is there, right? The whole family now is getting together and maybe we're getting the family photo. Extended family together for Thanksgiving. Let's get the family photo. An awkward cousin, for whatever reason, is like 
Every, the photographer, everybody, push in, push in, push in. And for whatever reason, awkward cousin's still like five feet away. Like you get the print or you load it on your computer and you're like, why is there so much distance? Why is he way off on the side? Like, right, there's just, there's just that awkward cousin and, and he does that. But if, if, if you're at the table with him at the Thanksgiving meal and you sit beside him, the stuff he says under his breath, he's quiet, he's reserved. The stuff he says under his breath, hilarious. He's got to be the funniest guy at the table, right? And, and you, you talk with him a little bit. You get a few words out of him, you know. And you realize, oh, this guy has the soft, uh, this guy has the softest heart in the whole family. It's awkward cousin, but wow, he's hilarious. His heart is so soft. He loves this family so well. Right? And on and on we go until we get to mom and dad. So the patriarch, matriarch of the family. They're at the end of the table. It's all their kids and their grandkids. Right? It's, it's their family. Everybody looks down the table. It's their parents. It's their grandparents. They know who they are. They, they know better than anybody that they're not perfect. <laughs> they look up at mom and dad and go, wow, they're not perfect. But they love us. Yeah, they I know that. I know that it, when I was struggling the most, when I was in real need, mom and dad quietly came beside me, didn't make it uncomfortable for me around the others, and they, they helped me meet, my, meet that need in that time. I was feeling so low over here that I remember when mom and dad, sinful as they are, flawed as they are, came beside me, they gave me just the right encouragement. They loved me. Every person around the table looks around and says, we're better for everybody being here. Quirky as we are, eclectic as we are. It's good to see a local church that we're committed to as family. My heart is always drawn to the people exactly like me. That's really comfortable for me. But you know what the gospel does? It makes us love our whole family well. So the question is that I see hovering is, how in the world do we do that? I could barely do that with my literal family. How do I do that with my church family? Well, especially when we find submitting to leadership that we can't necessarily trust very hard. All the risk that comes with submitting to leadership, that's tricky. Well, the culture around us has ex- extreme authority issues. How do we do that? We look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Listen. It says, have this, among, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There it is. That's the answer to how we commit and how we submit. We look to all that Jesus has done. He submitted himself to the cross. And he's the head of the church overall. It's Jesus humbling himself, serving others. Beautiful. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy are the writers, servants of Christ Jesus. They say, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi 
with the overseers and deacons. We see that this letter is to a body who have overseers and deacons. That's who this letter goes to. And then it goes on in verse 27, chapter 1. It says, only, this is to the whole church, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This verse makes two things really clear. We live our lives in light of the gospel and we strive for unity in the church as diverse as we are. I am convinced that what will impact the world like it did from Jerusalem and to the ends of the ancient world is not simply the pushing of morals and family values, but the genuine bond of Christ among local believers. I believe it. I'm convinced that that is what will impact the world. And in looking to Jesus who humbled himself, we are able to submit and to love and to strive for unity. And in living lives that are oriented around the gospel, we are able to be so radical in our discipleship that people are impacted for Jesus. So we look at Philippians 2, 5-9. We look at what Jesus did, and that, in, that, that, that works itself out in how we live here. Jonathan Lehman, in his great little book, Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus, said this, people are not afraid to submit. That caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting to read that. I find that people are scared to submit. But look what he says. People are not afraid to submit. They just want to submit to beauty. Like the valiant hero who submits himself to rescuing the damsel in distress. What's unexpected about Christianity is that its hero doesn't risk all for a damsel, but for what the Bible likens to a harlot. A harlot is a promiscuous woman at the very least, or a prostitute. What's unexpected about Christianity is that its hero doesn't risk all for a damsel, but for what the Bible likens to a harlot. Then he calls everyone that he saves to submit themselves to the same harlot, the bride still being made ready, the church. Now, submitting to ugliness does scare people. And that's what submitting to a local church can be. Churches are filled with sinners whose visions of glory contradict our own. But this is how Christ loved us. He said in John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we look to Christ and then we work out how that is meant to look. Christ's love wonderfully transforms the ugly into the beautiful. Our love for one another should do the same thing, help the ugly things become beautiful things. Who can love in this way? Only the ones whose eyes have been opened and whose hearts have been freed from the slavery of loving this world. As Jesus said in John 8:36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So I submit to you. work towards the beauty of the church. A couple weeks ago, um, a number of, of individuals in this church built these walls back here. and uh, These walls, I think, look really beautiful. Um, they were in a stack when we got started of donated pallet wood. And the pallets were falling apart and had little use. And they were not nice to look at. The, the individual boards, as, we, as, as I was going to say, we began to strip them. I didn't do that one of them. <laughs> um, as the boards were, were being removed, really really ugly, not great quality wood, and, and if you were to put much weight on them or do much with them, they'd probably break. They're just really rough. 
And if you saw a pile of these pieces, it's nothing to them. Ugly, really. But then a number of, of men and, and some, of the, uh, some women in the church began to have a vi- just vision around this and use their gifts, their skills, and began to put the pieces together, stack them on each other, build a wall, put it up, let it shine. Look at it. There's knots. There's variety. People were asking, what are you, what are you going to stain them, make them all look exactly right? Uh, we're just going to leave it raw. It's rough. Right? Some pieces made a little more put together than others. Some people a little rougher. Put it together. And it's just, it's one, it's one body. It's one wall. It's one thing. And I see beauty. I see beauty. And it is. It's the coming together of these things. And so here's the plea I have. It's that we can come to the church in one of two ways as we, as we give ourselves to the ministry of central or local church. We can come at it one of two ways with the critical eye that says, ah, oh, they're not getting this. Ah, oh, they don't understand that. Isn't the church supposed to be like this? Bringing gifts forward and saying, I know what the church is supposed to look like. I'm seeing Jesus and what he's done for her. And I'm going to invest here. I'm going to invest there. I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit to make beautiful things out of ugly things, even through me, a flawed, sinful vessel. See, the problem is, if I were to try and find, if I just search the world for the perfect church, once I found that perfect church, I couldn't join it. Because the minute I'd step in it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. And it's the same for all of us, is that we look oftentimes so critically at what the church is doing wrong, we don't recognize, we think that we're not one of the sinners. We contribute both. We walk in the doors and we bring our sin. We also walk in, our, in the doors and recognize that we're members of a body that have gifts to contribute. And as we all say, yeah, I'm a part of this. Yeah, I want to be a light in this world together with you. I'm on mission with you. I say yes. It's risky. It's dangerous. It's radical. Yeah. And I'm going to allow people to prod me where there's ugliness in me. And I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to also pursue beauty and and, and show people what they can be and maybe areas that God's gifted me to, 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 to help people. And I know that they'll be helping me. That's the beauty. Charles Spurgeon said, The church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out, out her imperfections. Christ loves his church, and let us do the same. I have no doubt that the Lord can see more fault in his church than I can, and I have equal confidence that he sees no fault at all because he covers her faults with his own love, that love which covers a multitude of sins, and he removes all her defilement with the precious blood which washes away all the transgressions of all his people. The church is at the same time a beautiful damsel and an unbecoming harlot. Harlot in the sense that when its members gather, sinners are gathering. Yet at the same time, God ultimately sees her as a beautiful damsel, rescued by Jesus, cleansed by his own blood. So you and I can approach the local church in one of two ways, working to point out its imperfections or working to turn the ugly things into beauty by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is alive and well, moving in the midst of faithful followers of Jesus Christ, primarily through his local church. Amen?
September 28th, Pastor Gary's going to be leading something called Central 101. If you're interested in baptism, in, interested in ministry partnership, it's a great little class. Good discussion time, working through some material. I think you'll find it really helpful. And it's a way to say, yeah, all right, I'm in. As a member of the church, remember that you're not a spectator on the sidelines, but a participant in the mission. And if you don't give, we lack what you could have brought. So I encourage you, contribute to our beauty. Will you do that? Let's pray together and respond in worship. Jesus, I praise you for your church. I praise you for your church. Your church universal that is even more um, diverse than local gatherings. And yet, Lord, local gatherings, local churches are so diverse as well. Diverse in, in the ages and the social classes and the ethnicities, yes, but, but meant to be diverse in the gifts that we bring, that serve one another, that encourage each other. Oh, Lord, when we gather and are unified and are encouraging each other and spurring one another on, when we're, we're leading each other out into the mission field of our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools. Lord, we are mighty together because you move in that way. Would we see it? Would we believe it? Would we see the fire and axe and, and expect nothing less, Lord, that you want to transform the world through the local churches you have established globally as one universal body? Thank you, Jesus. I personally, Lord, praise you for this church. I love it. And I feel humbled and honored to have a seat at the table. At Thanksgiving table, Lord, I praise you that we get to sit there together. We're better for it. In Jesus' precious name we pray.